0: The paper that I wanted to read was talking about all of the agricultural people around the world that are beginning to warn that we are heading to a world famine like we have never seen. This is a result of a combination of things, and I say this to you not to create fear, but it's always good to be informed because we can make wise choices, um, Number one, we've had a uh, cargo problem for about the last year. Uh, Shipping companies uh, have shut down. A lot of them have gone out of business. And I would say to you, and I know people think this is a conspiracy theory. All of this is being planned. Mm -hmm. This is being perpetrated on purpose. Uh, the goal of the elitists is to destroy the United States, bring the United States down to a third world country level, basically, flood in all of the illegals, which they're coming across our borders in droves like we've never ever seen before, <clears throat> because otherwise they can't subject us and keep us under their grip. So we've got the whole shipping crisis. And then we've got, I don't know if you're aware of this. I was astounded a couple of weeks ago. I read that there were something like 90 food processing plants and like chicken, turkey, beef producing places uh, that had been burned down. They updated the number. This is in the last year, 200. They've all amazingly caught fire. Just somehow spontaneously all of our food distribution centers are being burned up. No FBI investigations. Nobody's asking any questions. It's just like, oh, well, there goes another one. Uh, but there are now two, 200 of them that have, uh, have been burned up. <clears throat> in addition to the manipulation of the Satanists, because this is really who these people are. They are uh, avowed uh, Luciferians. Um, I think God is bringing his hand in for the purpose of judgment. Uh, we're having drought uh, across the West that is destroying crops. A lot of farmers put their seed in the ground and they've gotten absolutely no rain, and they say we're going to have nothing. Iowa, uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Nevada, a lot of places, uh, Kansas uh, is seeing all of this. Of course, you probably heard of the 10 to 15,000 cattle that died from heat. I'm from Kansas, I know Kansas heat, those cattle didn't die from heat, so just take it from me. Besides, you never have 10,000 cattle all die at the same time because of heat, just doesn't happen. At any rate, uh, the article that I was going to bring to you, and I just, I really regret that, I don't even know where it got mislaid, but it could be sitting on my desk at home. There is a a correspondent by the name of Michael Yon. Michael Yon was a United States Special Forces soldier. Uh, After he got out of the military, he became a correspondent, a war correspondent, and a crisis correspondent, really, for a lot of the flashpoints around the world. He's been uh, in multitudes of countries. He has a lot of insight, both from his military background He sent out a warning today and he said, people are going to think I'm crazy when I say this, but he said, you need to stockpile all the food you can. He said, what we're looking at in 2023, 2024 is something that no one living today has ever seen. And he said, it's going to be worldwide. Now, you may have the idea that I don't have to worry or prepare. The Lord will take care of me. If that's your mentality, that's fine. But when Joseph saw a famine coming, Joseph prepared. So I just say this to inform you and encourage you to do what you can um, just to get ready for some difficult times. My hope is that the rapture is just around the corner. And, you know, we look at it particularly on feast days. There's nothing that guarantees us that it's going to happen on a feast day. Uh, Our next feast, of course, is the Feast of Trumpets. And Paul does mention the last trump uh, at the rapture of the church. So uh, I think it would behoove us to pray the last prayer recorded in the Bible. Do you know what it is? The last prayer ever recorded in the Bible. Even so, come Lord Jesus. And I think I really believe that John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to put that at the end of the book of Revelation because that is what the church needs to be praying at this time. Because he said the spirit and the bride say come. And I believe when the bride starts really crying out for deliverance, I think that's when the Lord's going to come. So we certainly need to be praying for that. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to have to do some review. If you have your old notes with you, you might want to get page 47 handy uh, because we're going to go back to that. Uh, But we're going to have to hit things fairly quickly to try to get through this fairly long chapter. So if you would join me in a word of prayer before the throne of grace and we will launch into Hebrews chapter nine. Father, we are thankful for your grace. Once again, we recognize that without your mercy, your grace, your faithfulness and your love, uh, we would have no hope in this world. But Father, we see time and time and time again in Scripture, people who acted wisely, people who live their lives in obedience and fellowship and how you carried them through uh, very dangerous and difficult times. And we know that you are able to do the same for us. We live in this trust and in this confidence, and we just pray that our steps will be in line with what you have planned for us uh, in our daily lives and that we will constantly be looking to you and calling on you for our every need. Now, as we open your word, it is our prayer that God, the Holy Spirit, would open our minds, open our hearts, provide the spiritual light that we need to see the truth and nourish our souls from the bread of life. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Remember that the key uh, theme of the book, as the author stated in Hebrews 8.1, Uh, is that we have a high priest, and that high priest is a heavenly high priest, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And really everything in the book of Hebrews is relating to the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot of times we think only of one or the other, the person in his earthly life or the work on the cross. We really have to put them together because what Jesus laid down at the cross In your and my behalf was the righteousness of the life that he had just lived. When he said in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to destroy the law or the prophets. I came not to destroy, but to fulfill. He literally by his life fulfilled the righteousness of the law. When he went to the cross, there was a tremendous bargain that took place in which he traded his righteousness on behalf of sinners. And he took our sins. He took our sins on himself voluntarily. That's very important because his righteousness is offered to all, but it has to be received voluntarily. And we do that when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior. So the author is now moving on and he wants to show us some contrasts. In Hebrews chapter 9, we have two tabernacles, two priesthoods, and two covenants. And he wants us to understand that the value of the Old Covenant is not in what it accomplished, but what it pointed toward. The Old Covenant was like a neon sign flashing and saying, look ahead, look for what's coming, put your faith in the promises of God. And of course, the law and the prophets complement one another because the law pictures the person and the work of Christ, the prophets anticipate it by declaring things such as where he would be born, when he would be born, uh, where he would live, the fact that he would go into Egypt, the type of his ministry, the characteristics that he would have, all that he would accomplish for us on the cross, all of that is contained in the prophets. So Jesus fulfills all of that in our behalf, and the author is now going to Again, he's emphasizing, and you know, it's hard to get us to understand because we're 2,000 years after the cross. It's hard to get us to understand how difficult it was for the Hebrew people, those that this book was written to, to let go of all of the rich heritage that they had and all of the wonderful custom and culture and ritual and everything else, and cling solely and completely to the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the author is contrasting what they had in the Old Covenant. And I'm going to start by reading about the earthly sanctuary. Basically, the chapter breaks down like this. In verses 1 through 5, we have the earthly sanctuary. In verses 6 through 10, we have the earthly priesthood. Then, in verses 11 to 15, we have the heavenly sanctuary. In verses 16 to 22, we have the inauguration of the Old Covenant. And in verses 23 to 28, the inauguration of the New Covenant. And in each of them, there are contrasts going on. So very quickly, verses 1 through 5. Then indeed, even the First Covenant, First Covenant indicates the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, had ordinances of divine service and an early, sanctu- earthly sanctuary. The divine service is what we would refer to as worship. They had a system of worship, and it was in an earthly sanctuary. Verse 2 says, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. And then he goes on to say, closing out verse 5, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Nan can tell you that in former times, while he says it's not important to go into detail, I would go into detail. I would go into great detail going back through the entire book of leviticus we would study every sacrifice every offering all of those things but i'm going to obey the author and say that we cannot go into that in detail now what i would like to say is this he is talking about the sanctuary proper and the sanctuary proper we know that there was an outer court here he's not concerned with that he's not concerned with the brazen altar the sacrifice was made. He's not concerned right now with the labor of cleansing. He's concerned with what was called the holy place. If you're a shooter like me, you see that and you think hollow point, but that's holy place. (laughs) And in the holy place, there was the menorah. You remember the the seven lampstands? There was the table of Showbread, by the way, this would be the east side, which would put this on the south, this on the west, uh, sorry, north, and west. It was always set up in that way. And then there was the little altar of incense, the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. I'll just put HH. In which was the ark with the angels looking down into it with their wings stretched over the top and so forth. Now, I'm not going to take a whole lot of time on this, but very quickly on page 47, if you have your notes, you will remember that. And I'm going to go ahead and touch on the brazen altar and the, and the laver because that's coming up. The brazen altar is a picture of Christ on the cross. He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so there you have the picture of the final sacrifice. And then you have the uh, labor of cleansing. And the labor of cleansing is a picture of sanctification through faith in him. So he died for us. When we accept him, when we receive him by faith, we come to the cleansing. And that cleansing is a once-for-all cleansing. We are cleansed of all guilt and all penalty for all sins, past, present, and future. Having been cleansed, we are now able to enter into the holy place. Here we have the lampstand, a picture of Christ, the light of the world, the table of showbread, and you have all the uh, scripture references in your notes, The table of showbread, the showbread literally means the bread of the presence. In other words, the presence of the Lord in that bread. And you'll remember Jesus said, I think, four times in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. The altar of incense, of course, is a picture of what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians when he says that Christ was a sweet-smelling savor or a sweet-smelling offering on our behalf. It also has a secondary meaning of The prayers of the saints. And we see that in Revelation 5.8 and Revelation 8.3. The veil kept the ordinary priest from entering the Holy of Holies. The people had to stay out here. They couldn't enter in. The priest could enter in here. But only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Then only once a year, Leviticus chapter 16 tells us all about the Day of Atonement. And then, of course, the Ark of the Covenant made of wood overlaid with gold, a picture of the humanity and the deity of Christ. On top you have the two cherubs looking down, a picture of the righteousness and the justice of God. In between the two was the mercy seat, and when the high priest entered in, he would put the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat so that the three items in the Ark of the Covenant Each of them pictured sin. You remember what the bowl of manna pictured? The bowl of manna pictured sins of the tongue. What happened when God sent them manna? We don't like this manna. They murmured, they complained. The rod of Aaron that budded, what was it a picture of? Sins of the mind. Korah and his rebellion in trying to exalt themselves to a position equal to Aaron. And then the tables of stone in Exodus 32 When Moses came down the mountain and the people were engaged in sexual immorality and idolatry, and he threw the stones down and he broke them. So the picture of those three things is a picture of sin in all its character. The blood is on the mercy seat. The righteousness and the justice of God sees the blood of the sacrifice, not the sins of the people all of these things are pointing to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And here's the problem. The author's main argument is when you have the fulfillment of these things, why would you cling to those things? Why would you want to go back to a temple that God has declared is now invalid? Three times... In the book of Hebrews, I've given you the references over and over, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 10, the old covenant was obsolete, passing away, done away with. When did that happen? The day Christ died on the cross. When he said it is finished and this veil ripped from top to bottom, God was declaring that all of the worship of the uh, tabernacle or the temple in that case was done. It was over. It was no longer acceptable. So, we see the earthly sanctuary. Let's move on in verses 6 to 10 to the earthly priesthood. When these things had been thus prepared, in other words, when the tabernacle had been built and equipped, the priests, and I want you to notice the word always, the priests always went into the first part. Why? Because they had to go in there every day. Every day they had to light the lamps. Every day they had to bring coals from the altar of sacrifice to light the incense. They would uh, put the bread in place. They would do all of this day by day by day by day. The repetition is what the author wants us to get. The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services, but into the second part, the high priest went alone. Nobody else allowed once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and the people's sins committed in ignorance. This is where the blood was placed on the mercy seat. Now we might ask the question, what is the point of all this? Well, this is what the author is now going to get to. Verse 8. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet manifest while the first tabernacle was standing the main thrust of all of this ritual and ceremony and all this activity was there is a barrier between god and men here is god and he is holy and here is man and he is sinful And between the two is a barrier, and that barrier is made up of sin. The penalty of sin, the guilt of sin, stands between God and men. God is the offended party, but the interesting thing is that God is the one taking the steps to bring reconciliation. Not men. God doesn't have to be reconciled to men because he never left. It's kind of like the old story that I remember of an old couple driving down a country road and pretty soon a car came past, and there was this young couple uh, sitting in the front seat and of course their heads are close together and the guy's driving with one hand and uh, the old farmer's wife says to him, Henry, I remember when you used to sit close to me like that when we drove. And Henry looked over at him and he said, Ethel, I'm not the one that moved. He was still behind the wheel. She was the one on the other side of the car. Well, that really illustrates the point. God never changed. He never changed in his love for mankind. He never changed in his desire to bless mankind. But God is not only a God of love. He's a God of justice and justice and love never compromise each other. Only through the cross could God satisfy his just demand for a penalty for sin and at the same time extend his love to every member of the human race. The love of God and the justice of God meet. Or as the Old Testament says in Psalm 84 and I think maybe Psalm 91 says, righteousness and justice have kissed righteousness and justice have embraced. Why? Because God came up with a plan that fulfilled his just demands, but at the same time provided righteousness for each and every one of us. So the author says that the Holy Spirit is indicating there's a barrier between God and men. And he says it was symbolic for the present time. The word symbolic is actually word for parable. parabole. What is a parable? Well, parable means to throw something down beside. It's the idea that you have a point here being made or you have a story or you have a truth and you put something beside it to help explain it. That's what a parable is. The parables of Jesus are physical stories, earthly stories laid down beside spiritual truths designed to open our eyes to the deeper things. And of course, when the disciples ask him in, in Matthew 13, why are you always teaching in parables? You'll remember what he said. So that hearing they will not hear and seeing they will not see because he had reached a point in his ministry where his popularity that had flourished for a while was beginning to wane. The religious leaders were peeling off more and more of his followers. The attacks were getting stronger and stronger. And when we harden our hearts, it's very important for us to understand as we sit here together right now, when we harden our hearts to the truth, of the word of God, he will present it to us in a way that we will not understand. In other words, if we want to be hardened, he'll harden us. He'll seal us in our hardness. That's exactly what he did to Pharaoh. So it was symbolic, a parable for the present time. And I want you, if you mark your Bible, just underline the present time. And the present time goes with what he said in verse 8, still standing. Now, the author not dealing here with a temple. He's dealing with a tabernacle. And he says, while the tabernacle was still standing, it was a parable for the present time. What does that mean? Let me finish reading through verse 10 and I'll explain. It was a parable for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with food and drink and various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed. Until the time of reformation. So once again, if you mark, mark three things and connect them. I'm using the Bible that Holly gave to me because my eyes are not sharp like they once were. But if you saw my Bible, you would see a line under the present time. And then the... uh, Still standing in verse 8, the present time in verse 9, and the time of Reformation. Those three things connect. There was a time when the tabernacle and later the temple fulfilled its purpose. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, it was a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. It was like a, an object lesson for children. It was like when you teach little children, oftentimes, I don't know if anybody ever does this anymore, but back in my day, it was a big thing to use a flannel board. And you would put the picture of Jesus up there, and then you would talk about Jesus, and then you'd have the disciples following him, and then you'd have a sick man by the side of the road. And all of that was designed so that a little child with their capacity to understand and being able to visualize it and see it put up there in front of them. And I don't know why people don't do it anymore, because frankly, I think flannel boards are probably far better than a lot of the things we use today. At any rate, what is a flannel board? It's it's a parable. It's a picture. It's an illustration to help people grasp spiritual truth. So there was a time that the tabernacle had its purpose, When was that time? When it was still uh, standing. And it was a parable. And what was the parable for? It was a parable for our time. The parable is the ritual of the Old Testament. The sacrifices, the offerings, all of the rules and the regulations, the meticulous uh, craftsmanship that went into the tabernacle. All of that has meaning and significance, but it was all really for you and I. They didn't understand what we see in it. They didn't understand the fulfillment, we, but we do because we live in that time. And that's because we're in the time of reformation. What is the time of reformation? It's the new beginning. It's when Jesus Christ came into the world and split history in two and started something that had never existed before and something that had not even been anticipated. And what was that? Well, we'll illustrate with the age-old, never-failing, keep this thing from collapsing on me, timeline. Another parable. There's history. Eternity past. Eternity future. We live in a paragraph between eternity. By the way, for God, there's no difference between eternity past and eternity future. We look at it as a linear thing. With him, he lives in a dimension we cannot comprehend. It's probably why we struggle and wrestle with, well, what did God do all that time that he was here before he created our mind is incapable of comprehending the dimension in which God lives. But it's not a linear dimension like what we're in. The dimension that we're in is called time, and that's not a magazine. It's history. And history is his story. By the way, I meant to bring a book. Gregory Kukul. I think it's Gregory. The book is called Reality. I think the guy's name is Gregory. I know his last name is Kukul because it's a kind of a kooky name. Kukul. Uh, those of you that like to get book, good books to read, I'll tell you in short what his book is about. This is what he says about his own book. It's about how the world begins, how the world ends, and everything important in between. How the world begins, how the world ends, and everything important in between. And of course, basically what he's doing in the book is he is simply showing us the flow of the whole story from creation into the future. And he's just hitting the high points. And it's written in language that uh, elementary school kid can understand. By the way, he is an absolutely brilliant man. That's why he's able to convey things in such a simple way. It takes a real brilliant, wise person to take the deep things of Scripture and explain them in a way that a little child can understand. and I found the book absolutely fascinating. I read through it and I'm starting through it again. So you might think about checking it out. It's called Reality. So again, the author is saying, all of this is a parable. When we think about the tabernacle, when we think about the articles that are in the tabernacle, when we think about the lives of the saints, when we think about Joseph, we miss so much if we don't see how Joseph is a type of Christ. And all of this is what we refer to as shadow Christology. Where do we get that from? We get it from Hebrews 8.2, Hebrews 10.1. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let me just turn to the Colossians passage. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews 8, 5, not 8, 2. Let me just turn to the Colossians passage. Colossians chapter 2, 16. The author says, let no one judge you. Now, these are people that were being judged by Hebrew believers, or at least those who claim to be believers. They were being judged because they weren't continuing all of the rituals and offerings and sacrifices. So the author says, Paul, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance, or we could say the reality, is Christ. All of these things, from the beginning of creation until the coming of Jesus Christ, are pointing to Him. And they're pointing to His finished work on the cross, and they're pointing to a time of reformation. Paul calls it the mystery. And that is the age between the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 and the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. And anyone who lives between the coming of the Holy Spirit and the rapture of the church in the mind of the Apostle Paul is blessed beyond measure. We have what no one had in the Old Testament. We had what no one will have after us. There are rights, positions, privileges that are given to us that no other believer of any other age is ever going to be able to claim or experience. And all of those things are summarized in the little phrase that Paul uses, his favorite phrase, in Christ. No one in the Old Testament was in Christ. Yes, they were believers. They had eternal life. But in Christ is a theological term that refers to something absolutely unusual. Something that never existed before and will never exist again. There will be believers in the tribulation period. They will not hold the position that we hold. There will be believers in the millennial kingdom. They will not have the position that we hold. This is the great tragedy that I see in the church age is that most people think, well, there were believers in the Old Testament and there are believers now and there will be believers after us and we're all just the same. No, no, no. Scripture makes it very, very clear. We are the only ones designated as kings and priests. We are the only ones who are going to reign and rule with Jesus Christ. We're the only ones who have spiritual resources like the world has never seen before. The baptism of the Holy Spirit, the work of regeneration, which they had in the Old Testament, they were regenerate, they were born again. But then the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, no one in the Old Testament had that. It just didn't exist. And the fact that we are all spiritually gifted, only certain people in the Old Testament were spiritually gifted for a task that they were to accomplish. The fact that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit under the day of redemption, no one in the Old Testament had that. David had to pray after his sin with Bathsheba, and he committed murder, and he prayed, God, take not your Holy Spirit from me. None of us will ever have to pray that prayer because it's impossible that the Spirit would ever be taken from us. So it's important for us to understand, and the author is really trying to get these Hebrew believers in the first century to understand what you had back here was fine for infants. It's time to grow up. It's time to understand who you are, what you have, and what you can accomplish. And because of the power that God has given to you and I, we every one of us ought to be shaking our world. Every one of us has a sphere of influence. We have friends, we have family, we have neighbors, we have people that we run into just on a daily basis. We have a a spiritual power indwelling us that can have an impact on all of those people. And yet we don't realize it and sometimes we just stumble through our day thinking that we're no different than anyone else. I can see I'm gonna really have to rush to get through Hebrews (laughs) nine. Probably not gonna happen. Well, let's make a contrast now. In contrast to the many priests who went every single day, always going, the one high priest who only once a year went into the Holy of Holies, the fact that they recognized a barrier between God and man, what do we have? Look at verse 11. But Christ. You know, that's one of the great conjunctions. That is a conjunction of history. I want to show you how important it is by taking you back to Ephesians chapter 2 and show what it means to you and I. I love these contrasts, these conjunctions that come along in Scripture. Look at uh, Ephesians 2. You He made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's an awesome thought right there. He goes on to say, In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. By the way, everyone who is not a Christian is to one degree or another under the influence of Satan. Everyone. Every single one is to a degree or another under the influence in their thinking, uh, in their conduct, in their motivation. Because Satan is the external power working on the internal force that we call the sin nature. He appeals to us. He tempts us. Why is he even able to tempt us? Because we have a sin nature. So he says, according to the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, notice every single one of us, once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, And we were by nature children of wrath just as the others. What does John tell us in John chapter 3 verse 36? He who does not believe on him, the wrath of God abides on him. Now don't think of it as the wrath of God being God sitting up there grinding his teeth saying, I can't wait to get this guy in my hand. No, the wrath of God is not an emotion. It is the absolute intolerance of his holiness for sin. His his holiness has no tolerance for sin. It is an abiding and settled position of resistance against all sin. So, he says, Among whom we all conduct ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, we were by children, nature, wrath, as the others. Look at this conjunction of contrast, verse 4. But God... You know why that's important? Because without that conjunction, we are all doomed to eternity in the lake of fire. Man could not help himself. There was nothing he could do to redeem himself. Nothing he could do to reconcile himself to God. He was helpless. He was hopeless. He was useless. He had absolutely no path back to God. If God didn't take the initiative, none of us would have any hope. And when it says, but God, you have the entrance of Christ into the world right here. Now notice, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. When? Even when we were dead in trespasses. Like Paul says in in, uh, Romans uh, chapter 8, when he talks about the fact that even when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Verse 5, even when we were dead in trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. He raised us up together and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ. After His crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, Jesus Christ went to sit at the right hand of the throne of God, and Scripture says... Every person who believes in him on this earth is seated there with him. People say, "Can't you? aren't you excited to go to heaven? I said, I'm already there. I'm already there. Positionally, we are in Christ. Paul tells us in Colossians 3, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. For you have died, that is to this world, and your life. Is hidden with Christ in God. My friends, if we could learn to live our lives from that position, it would change everything. People often say, keep looking up. I often tell people, keep looking down. Keep thinking of where you are seated with Him. This never happened to anyone before. It's a part of that mystery. That was not revealed until it was revealed to the Apostle Paul. So, coming back to Hebrews. But Christ, verse 11, came as high priest of the good things to come. Good things that never existed before. With the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So what do we see in verse 11? We have a high priest in Christ and we have a perfect tabernacle. Pray tell, where is that tabernacle? We know that when Moses was given the uh, dimensions and articles and everything of the ark, he was making it according to a pattern in heaven. what is that perfect tabernacle could i suggest to you based on john 2 19 it is the body of jesus christ tear down this temple and in three days i will rebuild it so in verse 11 we have not just jesus christ our savior we have jesus christ our temple our place of worship not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place. Most holy place where? The very presence of God. He entered the most holy place once for all. Greek word, hapax. Hapax means never to be repeated. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, it was done. The work of salvation, the security of the believer. One of the things that tears my heart out so much is when I travel around the world and we've been in at least 40 countries where we've taught the word. I think we've been in 60 countries altogether, some just passing through. The biggest problem all around this world is the fear that believers have that they can lose their salvation. It's the biggest fear, and there are people who live in mortal terror that something they've done is unforgivable. Something they've done, God is going to hold against them. And it is so very difficult, but it's a, one of the greatest joys of my life when I hammer away at this for a week or two week or three weeks sometimes in groups. And finally, I see the light start coming on and they start realizing that what Christ accomplished was something that was done once for all that never needs to be repeated and that it covers not just the sins of the past, but the sins of the future. Everything in our history, from birth to death, is taken care of. Once for all, he obtained for us eternal redemption. People often say, I fear I've lost my salvation. And I say, what is salvation? They say, eternal life. I say, how long is eternal? They say, eternal is forever. I say, when does eternity end? They say, eternity never ends. I say, how can eternal life end? And they go... (laughs) eternal life's eternal it can't end now we can fail and when we fail god deals with us in discipline and if we keep on failing his discipline is going to increase in intensity until life becomes extremely difficult and in rare circumstances he may even call a believer home early but that person has eternal life once they trust Christ as their Savior. So, he gained for us eternal redemption for if, here is now a uh, contrast, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. Let me just put this in context. If a ritual using animal blood could give you ceremonial cleansing, which it did in the Old Testament time. If you were unclean, they would sprinkle the ashes of the heifer on you or they would perform a a sacrifice or an offering and you were declared forgiven. If that could provide ceremonial cleansing. Here's the key verse of the whole chapter. I think this is probably as far as we're going to get. How much more? I want to explain that this little phrase, like many others in the book of Hebrews, is one of the favorite terms of a certain character that we know. uh, The name of the Apostle Paul. Much more. Much more is a rabbinical argument. It's a rabbinical argument. And the rabbinical argument means from the less to the greater. We call it, the Latin term for it is a fortiori. An a fortiori argument. Uh, We might say something like, uh, if a little child can carry five pounds how much more should an adult man be able to carry 40 or 50. it's that's a very simple illustration but it's an off 40 or it's it's a very logical conclusion that everyone would have no difficulty understanding uh if a uh If a grade school high jumper can jump two feet and a high school high jumper can jump, who knows what they're up to now, five or six feet, what would an Olympic athlete be able to jump? The answer would be much more because simple logic would tell us that this is true. So if you lived in Old Testament times, remember that time we mentioned while the tabernacle was still standing, the time that it was a parable for what was to come, the time that it was looking forward and pointing to the time of reformation, the time of fulfillment, all of those things. If we lived in those times and we could have a, I'll say, a comforted conscience that we had been forgiven because we performed the rituals required. How much more should we have confidence and comfort and security because of the death of Jesus Christ? How much more shall the blood of Christ, and I might just pause long enough, and we might actually pick this up and develop this because I think it's a worthwhile topic a lot of people get caught up in the term blood of christ and we have songs that sing about the put me under the flood and the gushing flood of blood and it's really kind of bizarre you know when you stop and think about some of the terminology that we use but when the bible uses the phrase blood of christ it's a comprehensive term for the totality of his sacrifice It's talking about not just what happened to him physically. We know that he bled when they put the crown of thorns on his head and beat it down with a rod. We know that he bled when they took a scourge and they tore the skin from his back down to his rib cage. We know that he bled when they drove the spikes into, these were not little nails, these were like big square spikes that they drove into, not the hand, but the wrist, and then the feet placed on top of each other. We know that there was blood, yes. But was that blood all there is? Was it only physical? The answer, of course, is no. The blood, like the tabernacle, is a picture of something much, much greater. And Isaiah goes into it when it says he poured out his soul in death. The penalty for sin for every member of the human race is what? Spiritual death. Physical death is an afterthought. Physical death happens because we're born spiritually dead, uh, but physically alive. And because the penalty for sin is spiritual death, when God said to Adam, in the day that you eat that fruit... Actually, you know what the Hebrew says? It doesn't say you shall die. It says, in the day you eat the fruit, dying you will die. In other words, Adam, here you are in the garden, and there is a fruit on the tree, and on the day that you take that fruit and eat it, dying on that day, you will 936 or whatever years later die What was the effect of spiritual death in Adam? Separation from God. That is the penalty of sin. Separation from your creator. Separation from the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the provision of God. And that's why Paul says of every member of the human race, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We're separated from God. So Jesus comes along and Jesus, through the eternal spirit, offers himself and the eternal spirit. If you take the blood of Christ as a uh, term uh, summarizing the totality of his sacrifice through the eternal spirit, puts us into the spiritual realm of it, offered himself without spot to God. How much more? Should it cleanse your conscience from dead works? How much more? That's the author's point. And the dead works, we generally tend to think of as sin. But that's not the author's point. Because you'll remember back in Hebrews 6.1, he talked about dead works. And what was he referring to? Attempts to earn salvation. How much more should the sacrifice of Christ cleanse our conscience from any attempt to earn God's favor, deserve God's favor, work for God's favor, appease him on behalf of our sin? We should be free of all those things because none of that is necessary. The work of Christ did it all. Have you ever done this? Don't feel bad if you have, because I have. God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. I promise that I'm going to uh, do this to pay for it, or I'm going to uh, do some kind of penance. That's the whole idea of penance in the Catholic Church. If I do enough penance, maybe God will forgive me. No, that is a dead work. That's a waste of time. You know what God wants from us? humility and honesty humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up at the proper time and when we fail and when sin gets into our life and we come to God and we say father I have sinned just like the prodigal son this is what I've done your word condemns it I know that it's wrong I come before you and I honestly proclaim my need for your mercy your grace your forgiveness and you're cleansing. And then you can rise up and say, thank you that you have done it. You've done it. But you know what we do? Later that afternoon, God, I really am sorry for that sin I committed. The next day, God, I please forgive me. I think it was Harry Ironside who had a sermon that was called, uh, When We Plead For Forgiveness For The Sin That God Forgot. And he said, Once you've confessed it and God has forgiven and cleansed you of it and you come back and say, I'm so sorry I did that sin. If only God could open up the heaven, he would say, what sin? What are you talking about? Because the provision of the new covenant is, isn't this wonderful? Their sins and their iniquities I will remember day by day, right? No, their sins and iniquities I'll remember no more you know what people constantly throw at me when I teach this around the world it's too simple it's too simple it's too easy and that's why people miss out on the grace of God that's why a lot of people don't become Christians it's too easy what just believe in Christ all I have to do is trust him no good works, no penance, no self-sacrifice that'll never work And the reason every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord is because when they stand before the judgment seat, if you look at the very last verse, actually verse 27, 28, it is appointed for men to die once. Why? Because we're all born spiritually dead. But after this, the judgment, that is the natural way of all men. Verse 28, however, says, So Christ was offered once, that's that word once for all again, to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for Him, He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. See the great outlook that we have? When you think of Christ coming and you think of, I'm going to be cringing and... and No. No. He is going to come without reference to sin. That's a way that we could say it. In other words, sin's not the issue when he comes back. Salvation is the issue. So that's where we're headed. That's the last half of chapter nine, which we will not get to tonight. However, I think we have made a valiant effort to do what we could do. Um, So I'm gonna close in prayer, and then uh, we've got a couple more songs outstanding father i do thank you for your love and grace and it does seem too big too great too astounding just too mind-boggling and father we find it hard in our broken and uh, twisted and fallen selves to accept that such grace such mercy such compassion such love could even exist But, Father, this is what your word proclaims to us, and we need to accept it at face value. I do pray that you'll comfort us. And, Father, the whole point of this mercy and grace that you pour out on us is not only that we'd have a clear and undefiled conscience and that we'd have comfort and peace in our soul. It's so that we would serve you, that we would be in gratitude, compelled and motivated, to live lives that honor and glorify you, that share the truth of your word with other people and lives that ultimately are going to bring recognition and glory back to you when we stand in your presence. Help us to live in such a way that this is the reality of our life. We pray in Jesus' precious name, amen.